my gorgeous friend, my psychic sister. It's so great to see your face. How are you? It's so wonderful to see your face after a little reprieve. Yeah. I was like, I missed you. It flew by though. So I kind of just feel like I talked to you the other day. (laughs) Kind of? Isn't that fucked up? It's kind of fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) That's just how much we're both working. It's insanity. Ah, what is going on other than that? (laughs) Nothing. I was just lamenting this too, Monique, before we started. (laughs) I was like, I have nothing to talk about because I've done nothing but like work for the past two weeks. I did have time to squeeze in a book. So I read. Oh, yes. I read it in one day, though. I just like binged it real quick. I'm so jealous. Uh, It was Downtown Al by one of my favorite authors, Chuck Klosterman. It's his first fiction book that he's written, and I believe only one that he's written. He wrote for Spin Magazine for many years, and so all of his books are usually like nonfiction books about music. Very interesting, just very insightful and well-written. He does sex, drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, and Killing Yourself to Live. (laughs) I know none of this, but that's an amazing title. Right? If the title didn't sell you immediately, like I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover slash title, but pick it up. It's amazing. Judged. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So read Downtown Now. It's phenomenal. I won't spoil anything. They are apparently making a movie about it as well. Oh. Yes. Uh, And then I picked up another book by him, The 90s which is another nonfiction book by him. So cool. I just started that though. And immediately was like, oh, I don't have time for this. Why did I do this to myself? <laughs> On a similar note, I've, I've been uh, reading some, again, which I don't have time to do. Uh, Skip Hollinsworth. He writes for Texas Monthly. I don't, I think he still does. Basically, I got a Texas Monthly membership uh to do the the bernie story oh yeah years ago because he was the one who wrote the story and he basically is the guy who covers the all the in-depth texas crime for texas monthly he also wrote a piece on candy montgomery which is what various shows were used as source material that i can't really talk about because of the fucking actor strike but he's a really great, detailed, uh, wonderful writer. So Texas Monthly, I, I get uh, like emails every, you know, whatever week or, and almost always they'll do a, like a flashback to Skip Hollinsworth story. And I'm like, fuck yeah. And then it'll be like 20 pages. I'm like, God damn it. Fucking time for this. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just like 40 tabs open on my laptop. like things to get to oh my god yes that is my life on that note i found out that you can run out of safari tabs on your phone i do this every day it's 500 tabs and i run out of them every day monique when i realized i was like oh girl you gotta get your shit together you have 500 tabs open (laughs) my shit is emphatically never together ever this is why this is why we get along so well <laughs> 500 tabs. Uh, I just use it as like an extension of my brain. So, like, when people tell me things or like restaurants or recommend things, I'll just like keep it open. But I realize now I probably should, should clean up my alternate brain here because it has too many things going on, clearly. How am I going to remember it, Amy? I don't know. I know. That's, that's very true. I'm not. That's the 
that's the answer to that question. <laughs> Just going to wipe that slate clean. Oh, what about you? You had a trip? I did. Girl, I didn't even remember that. I did have a trip. <laughs> I had a- <laughs> Also, I'm stone cold sober for all this. I'm just my brain is fried. Yeah, I went to New Orleans, which I adore. I love New Orleans so much. Uh, as if you guys have listened, everyone here knows. I went with a friend of mine, Meredith. Hey, girl. It was just great. Last year, one of my regulars who also loves New Orleans informed me that there is a seance room above murials in Jackson Square in, in the quarter. <gasps> and I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, how the fuck do you get in there? He's like, oh, you just like go to the bar and like just get a drink and be like, oh, it's the seance room open. They let you in. I was like, what the fuck? So of course I went and <laughs> hilarity. So I go to the bar with my friend Meredith and I don't even remember how the fuck this happened, but the bartender who's a great A asshole decided to mansplain murder to me, which is hilarious <laughs> given literally fucking everything. Did that need mansplaining? Like it's, I'm pretty sure we all understand the concept at this point in time. And I was just wildly amused because of everything about it. Everything about it was was insane. So I was like, I will fucking talk to you for like eight hours and just make you sound like an idiot, but you're too stupid to realize you're a fucking idiot. And I will revel in this. And then I'm mocking you. Yep. Right. I love that. But Meredith is a healthy person. And she's like, I don't like this. I want to leave. And I was like, totally, girl. <laughs> That's fine. You're, you're like, you That's don't want to fuck with this guy for eight hours? Like, come on. <laughs> Which ultimately was the better choice because we went to the seance room and Amy, it is the things that dreams are made of. <gasps> of course it is. It's literally called the seance room. Like It's like very Bordello-y. Ooh. And I'm sending you pictures right now. Sold. You had me at Bordello. And I was like, I am going to move in here and live here for the rest of my life. <gasps> Monique. Girl. Like, where do I sign my lease? Let's fucking go. Literally. Literally. This is like very swanky. It's very swanky. And then they have two sarcophagi when you walk in, his and hers. Oh, okay. I just got to that picture. And I was like, this is everything I fucking want in my life. Yes. This is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, girl. Oh, it's a vibe. So when we get our fucking lives together and go to New Orleans together, I'm fucking taking you there. Yes. I was like, sometime next year. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, maybe. Who knows? So yeah, so I went to New Orleans. New Orleans is always amazing. It's always amazing. Even when Delta canceled an entire day of flights, so we lost (gasps) a day. Oh, no. But it doesn't matter because I still got to go to New Orleans. There you go. So yeah, it was great. Uh, We stayed at this stunningly beautiful hotel called the Hotel St. Vincent. It was like, Art Deco dream come true. I love that. I love Art Deco. So oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It was fantastic. And actually a couple of announcements. A different Meredith, one of our listeners, just gave birth to a baby. <gasps> Congratulations, Congratulations, Meredith. And Orlando and Chantel, who are very good friends of mine and are also listeners of the pod, also welcomed twins recently. Oh, <gasps> Congratulations and also good luck. Uh, yeah. And and the, the twins were very excited to meet them, which I get it because they're both lovely human beings. So they they showed up quite early that we were planning out the baby shower. And I was like, JK, kids are here. <laughs> You're like, hi, I know you have plans, but actually um, I got to get out of here. Thanks. Right now. Yep. 
right now. Also, possibly even more exciting than this. Yesterday, I met a woman who, for real, real, dated Billy Joel. <gasps> Girl. Did I just get full body chills from you telling me that? hundred <laughs> percent. Obviously. So I was introduced. It was like randomly I was out with someone. We ran to his neighbor and he introduced me and I was like, oh, this is so-and-so. And I was like, hey, girl, what's up? Nice to meet you. And then we like sat down and he was like, P.S. She dated fucking Billy Joel. And it's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and you're like, did you know? Yeah. And he was like, uh, I literally listened to the episode yesterday. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. So we're like, this isn't just like a random factoid you're giving me. This is, there's context to this. I love this. So now it is my quest to befriend said woman and then just get all of the hot Billy Joel goss over Prosex. <gasps> yeah. All right. I have no doubt that you're going to be able to accomplish this task. And I can't wait for you to tell me everything. I feel good about it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say she was never possessed by Billy Joel via injection. He probably gave her another injection. Ayo! Um, <laughs> did you guys miss us? <laughs> I don't know. That remains to be seen. <laughs> but it was wildly exciting. And I really appreciate that the person I was with was not weirded out by the unbridled excitement when he gave me that information that I showed and displayed. I love that. No, as they shouldn't be. Because that is wonderful information to share. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm going to guess she's also going to say that he wasn't affiliated with the mafia in any way, shape, or form. So Probably not. Yeah. He would show, apparently he would show up to pick her up in a limo and everyone's like, oh shit. I mean, it's Billy fucking Joel. Yeah. It's Billy fucking Joel with Billy Joel money. Yeah. And she's a fucking smoke show. So I fucking get it. <laughs> get that Billy Joel D. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. You have to tell me everything. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like a long-term plan <laughs> because I'm also going out of town tomorrow. That's fine. You got to lay the foundation. Like, yeah. Just be like, hey, girl, what's up? Just randomly come across her in the hall. Hey, what's up? How you doing, girl? Hey. So funny to find you here in your place of residence. <laughs> that I don't live at. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's the really exciting news for me. I love that. All that was so exciting. Babies, Billy Joel, like what's not to love? Girl, literally. Fuck. Yeah. I was like, that's amazing. I liked that news. That was very like heartwarming and just very nice. It's nice to come back to. Yeah, exactly. Nice news. Paul Rubens is dead, which fucking sucks, but you know. I know. Did I cry at a bar in New Orleans when I found out? I sure did. Did you? No. Yeah. I'm emotional. I got it. I get so emotional, baby. All the time. I do love that about you, though. All the time I'm emotional. It's not my favorite. Because I am not, and I, I need some of that in my life. Mm -hmm. Let's be real. It's just been stifled down, girl. I know. I, like, really, I really tried hard to repress it because I was such an emotional child, and I was like, oh, I can't just, like, cry at everything. I probably should, I should probably stop that. Oh, see, I'm just not emotional, like, around something very serious, like, with my family. Because I found out I disassociate. Yay! <laughs> the more you know. Exactly. I love that. Yes, I was very sad about Paul Rubens. I don't know if I have ever told you this story, but my father, one, does an amazing Pee Wee Herman impression. And two, when he got caught in the dirty movie theater, that Halloween, my dad dressed up as him with a tub of popcorn like you get at the movie theater. <laughs> oh, God. With a hole cut out of the bottom and a bottle of Jergens in it. 
and he went around <laughs> to a bunch of Halloween costume contests and won a bunch of money that year because of how fucking spot on his impression is. I love that. It's amazing. I He sent me a picture of him dressed as that, and I am also going to send that to you. I love that. Oh, my God. It's phenomenal. Okay. He does not have the tub of popcorn in this picture. Oh, my God. It's spot on, is it not? It's jarring. I know. He does the voice perfectly. I It used to kill me as a kid. It still kills me now. Like, I love it so much. I love everything about that. Yeah. Like 12 years ago, something like that, he did a show on Broadway. He did like live Pee Wee live on Broadway. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. I went with my ex-boyfriend and I guess mine, incidentally, improv teacher who was in a cult, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Side note, just mentioning cash. Just randomly throwing that in there. I'll bring it up at some other point. So she was in the Groundlings and she was in the Groundlings with like Jennifer Coolidge and Kristen Wiig. I think she like roomed with Kristen Wiig uh, when she lived in L.A. And Phil Lamar was she also went to school. Yeah. with Phil Lamar and Phil Lamar took over for Lawrence Fishburne's role of Cowboy Curtis. So when we went, we were able to go backstage at the show. And I didn't meet Paul Rubens, but I was like a couple of feet away from him. And I did get to meet. Phil Lamar, and I did get to meet Miss Yvonne, which was very exciting. That is amazing. Like, mad TV superstardom right there. Oh, yeah. Totally. And I honestly wouldn't have even needed to talk to Paul Rubens. Like, I would have been happy just to bask in his presence. That's literally how I felt about it. Because he was talking to someone else, and I don't want to be like, you know. Oh, my God, I love you so much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, he's like, yeah, I fucking know. Obviously. But it was, yeah, so he, it was just like... That was like a couple feet away from him. It was very, very exciting. I love that so much. That makes me so happy. Yeah. RIP. He was a good one. He was a good one. Mm. All right. Now that we've brought everybody down. Yeah. <laughs> the death of Paul Rubens. Do you have a spooky paranormal story for me this week? I do. And while I went to New Orleans and there's all the spooky things there, I feel like I failed you on your birthday, Amy. What? No. Yes. <gasps> Never. You get the best gifts ever. What are you talking about? Thank you. But she deserved an alien story. So <gasps> God damn it, you're getting one today. I'm so excited. I'm never mad about it. I'm never <laughs> mad about an alien story. I'm like glowing right now. She totally is. She looks like she just got a facial. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so excited. Okay. So we're going to be talking about Granger Taylor. Sources, vice.com, nami.org, cbc.ca. Wikipedia, Hammerson Peters YouTube channel, and the Prosecutor's Podcast. Granger Ormond Taylor was born on October 7, 1974, in the logging and fishing town of Duncan, British Columbia in Canada. When Granger was still an infant, his father tragically drowned while on vacation at the family cabin in Horn Lake. When he was two years old, Granger's mother's grace married a widower named Jim Taylor, who also had children of his own. And it seemed like there was a bit of a Brady Bunch situation because Granger ended up having seven siblings. <gasps> Girl. Uh, oh, my God. Yep. Three biological siblings, three step siblings and one half brother. Early on, Granger's parents noted that he was withdrawn and socially awkward. Here's the thing, because my my nephew nieces, it's a, a similar family dynamic. I have three like this, like three biological nephews and nieces 
three step ones and then one that's a half to both sides. And the youngest one who's two is kind of like a little bit withdrawn. And I'm like, yeah, because she has seven other fucking kids to compete with. Yeah. I wouldn't. I don't know. I literally can't imagine. Girl. Yeah. It's nuts. I couldn't imagine. It was three of us and it was that was plenty. (laughs) So I can't imagine this many. So anyway, you know, he's withdrawn and socially awkward, but he was wildly intelligent. What Granger lacked in social skills, he more than made up for in an extraordinary aptitude for mechanics. As a child, he spent most of his time in his bedroom taking apart his toys to see how they worked. Despite being extraordinarily gifted, Granger wasn't interested in school and dropped out in the eighth grade, which I didn't know you could do as a non-adult. Yeah. I mean, isn't there like the law? I'm sorry. I've been told my whole life school is mandatory. Was it not mandatory? (laughs) Could I have just fucked off? I mean, it's also Canada and it's the early 60s. So I guess like a 13-year-old knows best. Like, I don't know, because I was like, like, I thought that's illegal. Like, you have to go to school, at least until, like, high school, no? I, I don't know. I don't fucking know. Well, Guess not. Granger was like, don't give a fuck. I'm rolling out. Granger became infatuated with machines, and it wasn't long before friends and family noticed Granger's uncanny ability to fix almost anything. He began working as an apprentice for a neighbor who was a mechanic, absorbing all the knowledge he had to give about the inner workings of cars. After apprenticing for only a year... Granger decided that he had acquired all the skills necessary for him to start working on his own. He set up a shop in his parents' backyard and started to tinker away at his own unconventional projects. At 14, he built a single-cylinder automobile, which is currently on display at Duncan's BC Forest Discovery Center. Damn! And when you think of, like, an old-timey car, like, that's what the fuck he built. I love this. At 14 fucking years old. I'm blown away. Girl, Get ready. Buckle the fuck up. Three years later, he rebuilt an abandoned bulldozer that professional heavy-duty mechanics had deemed unsalvageable. Once fixed, Granger loaned the bulldozer out to his neighbors for projects around their homes. In his early 20s, he found an old abandoned steam engine on an abandoned railway in the forest behind his home that had been there since at least the 40s. This train was super fucked. Not only had it been abandoned and out of use for decades, it had been rusted over due to 20 plus years of rain and had alder trees growing through its frame. But that proved no match for Granger's skill as it took him only two years to restore the train to full working order. Damn! Girl. This dude is like a savant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like he's like full on a genius, like totally. He even laid tracks for it through his parents' garden and gave the neighborhood kids rides in it. Oh, that's really cute. I know. So impressive was his work that the government of British Columbia eventually purchased the steam engine, which is also currently on display at the BC Forest Discovery Center in Duncan. There seemed to be no mechanical mystery too daunting for Granger Taylor, and as a result, his workshop became something of a local attraction. Fast forward to New Year's Eve, 1969, about six months after Granger had finished hauling the last piece of his rustic train onto his parents' property. It's five in the morning at the Cowichan District Hospital, which was not too far from Granger's home. While tending to patients in the geriatric wing, four nurses working the night shift allegedly saw a silent, brilliantly lit flying saucer hovering outside the window about three stories off the ground near the children's ward. Doreen Kendall, the first nurse to see the phenomenon, claimed that she saw two humanoid pilots standing in the craft's cockpit throughout its transparent window. 
the four nurses watched. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Amy. She's literally like glowing like, and smiling <laughs> and doing a little dance. She's so excited. Smiling and like bouncing around. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> the four nurses watched in astonishment as the craft drifted behind the grove of trees before zipping away into the night sky like a shooting star. Later that morning and throughout the following night, Citizens from all over Duncan and the surrounding area, including a handful of elementary school teachers and a pilot for the Royal Canadian Naval Air Service, came forward with reports of a similar UFO sighting throughout the region. Unsurprisingly, flying saucers and visitors from outer space were all anyone could talk about in the southwestern Vancouver Island in the months that followed. For perspective, this sighting was just seven years after Betty and Barney Hill claimed to have been abducted by aliens in rural New Hampshire. In 1976, two Iranian F-4 Phantom II pilots reported losing instrumentation and communication abilities while flying over Tehran. The pilots reported, quote, bright lights in the sky, end quote, and a UFO was blamed for both the equipment and weapons failure. By the end of the 70s, UFOs and aliens had become a cultural phenomenon, reflected in Hollywood with the release of films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, and Star Trek. And it seemed that Granger Taylor similarly focused his attention on the skies. Not long after he applied the finishing touches to his steam locomotive, Granger became interested in the dynamics of air travel, earning his pilot's license and beginning restorative work on his crowning achievement, a scrapped World War II P-40 Kitty Hawk fighter plane, which if you've ever, you've definitely seen a Kitty Hawk. It's those planes that it's painted with like the teeth. Yeah, like I know the, exactly those like meant. World War II. Yeah, it's it's very iconic to the whole World War II fighter plane situation. So he restored one of those, which would eventually sell to a private collector for twenty thousand dollars. Damn, girl! But as is the case with geniuses and highly intelligent people, Granger got bored with conventional mechanics. It no longer seemed to challenge him, and by the late nineteen seventies, Granger turned his focus and attention to the greatest aeronautical mystery of all the propulsion of flying saucers. So fucking excited right now. <laughs> girl. This dude might be my hero. You know what? I think he is, girl. Yeah. I really think he is. No engineer on Earth had yet been able to construct, let alone conceive an engine, which could enable a huge metallic disc to maneuver as tightly, rapidly, and silently through the air as the flying saucer described by UFO witnesses. So Granger Taylor made it his mission to figure out this mystery that had baffled the most brilliant minds of military aerospace and set out to construct his own flying saucer. It was around this time that Granger stopped by to visit one of his old friends. His friend had a son named Robert, who had also dropped out of school in eighth grade. But unlike Granger, Robert was definitely not a genius. But Granger took a liking to the kid. He saw himself in Robert and was like, hey, why don't you start working with me in my shop? I could teach you a bunch of things. And just like that, the 15-year-old and the 32-year-old spent every day together. Every day, Granger would come by, pick up Robert, and the two would work on various projects together. Now, if this was the true crime portion of the episode, it would be around now that the alarm bells would start going off. But as red flaggy as this situation might seem, there was absolutely nothing nefarious going on here. Granger was just a good dude looking out for a lost kid. Granger became something like a big brother to Robert. And it wasn't long before the two became best friends. Robert later said that Granger was one of the most influential people in his life. Were it not for him, Robert is certain that he would have ended up in jail or dead. 
As Granger's right-hand man, Robert described Granger as a genius, a mechanical savant who could build anything, fix anything, and understood the inner workings of machines on an almost supernatural level. Robert said of his friend and mentor, quote, it was a genius bordering on insanity, end quote. In 1978, Robert helped Granger build a private office the same size and shape as a quintessential UFO. Granger scavenged two radio tower satellite dishes from the local dump and constructed a cylindrical building at the edge of his parents' garden, which he erected on stilts. The pair decorated the sides of the metallic structure with a lightning bolt design and a port-like window. Granger's UFO office was complete with a couch, TV, and even a cast iron wood-burning stove. Once complete, Granger stocked his new study with science fiction novels and pseudoscientific books on UFOs, which were intended to inspire him and stimulate his ingenuity. Granger spent much of his time between 1979 and 1980 hunkered down in his backyard UFO office with his books and notes trying to crack the mystery of UFO propulsion. Then, in late October, early November of 1980, Granger confided in Robert that he'd been having incredibly vivid dreams. Dreams unlike any he's ever had before. And that in these dreams, he had been contacted by beings from beyond our solar system who communicated with him telepathically. Apparently, in the months leading up to his vivid dreams, Granger had attempted to contact extraterrestrials via a radio he had built, but to no avail. Despite this, Granger told Robert that he initially didn't put too much stock in the dreams. Initially, he just found them to be very interesting. But every night, the dreams got more vivid and more detailed. During these telepathic conversations, Granger repeatedly asked the aliens about the source of their propulsion technology for their flying crafts. But the only thing that the beings would divulge is that it had something to do with magnetism, which when I read that, like brought me back to the Coral Castle episode and about how like allegedly he was able to move all those pieces because of like magnetism. And they could never really explain how. Exactly. Or why. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And Granger believed that the reason these otherworldly beings had chosen to communicate with him was because of Granger's willingness to reach out to them in the first place via his radio. Not only that, they recognized his incredible mechanical skill. And that's when Granger confides in Robert that these beings have given him an offer unlike any that has ever been given to anyone on Earth. They want to invite him on board their spaceship, put his mechanical skills to work, and take him on a 42-month-long voyage no one has ever experienced on Earth through the Milky Way. Where do I sign? Immediately. <laughs> Let's fucking go. The aliens even gave him a date that they would come and get him. November 29th, 1980. But they said that they would come under the guise of a storm. A storm unlike any the area had ever seen. One dark enough and loud enough to conceal their arrival. While Robert didn't entirely believe Granger's story, suspecting that the eccentric genius had simply experienced a strange dream or some sort of hallucination, he couldn't entirely discount it either. If an extraterrestrial intelligence were to contact anyone on Earth, Granger would undoubtedly be their first choice. Granger, on the other hand, absolutely believes these dreams to be true and starts getting his affairs in order. November 29th comes, and sometime that morning, he writes a letter to his parents. Afterwards, Robert meets up with Granger, as he had done every day, and Granger reminds Robert, it's the day of the show, y'all. And while his young friend notices that it's overcast, which isn't particularly unusual for the area, it doesn't really look like it's going to storm out, and definitely doesn't look like it's going to be a storm on the level that Granger had told him. But Granger's like, notarize that shit, girl. It's official. The storm's coming. Fast forward a few hours, 
and Duncan was rocked by a storm the likes of which no one had ever seen in living memory. Thunder, lightning, torrential rain, and gale force winds descended upon the city, uprooting trees and downing power lines. The news would later dub it the storm of the century. At 6 p.m. that evening, right before the height of the storm, Granger Taylor paid a visit to Bob's Grill, one of his favorite spots. And his server noticed that while Granger was clad in his usual attire consisting of jeans, logging boots, and a brown knitted sweater, she noticed that he didn't have a coat with him and was visibly unprepared for the upcoming storm. At 6.30, the six foot three, 240 pound Granger Taylor paid his bill, left the diner, and drove off in his 1972 Datsun truck. And that's the last time anyone ever saw the 32-year-old Granger Taylor. The following day, as the people of Duncan were busy clearing the roads and driveways of fallen trees and windblown debris, Taylor's parents discovered that their son was missing. That's when his stepfather, Jim, found the note Granger had written them the previous morning taped to his and Grace's bedroom door. The note read, Dear mother and father, I've gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As recurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I am leaving behind all my possessions to you as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. On the back of the note was a hand-drawn map that while no one has been able to definitively decipher what the map is of, some have interpreted it to be of Waterloo Mountain, located 10 miles southwest of the Taylor home. In accordance with his note, his parents looked through Granger's will and found something curious. He had replaced the words death and deceased with departure and departed throughout the document. Not only that, Granger left behind $10,000 in cash. Jim Taylor and his sons got in their trucks and searched high and low for Granger, checking hospitals and driving lonely logging roads in the hopes of finding some clue as to his whereabouts. Despite their best efforts, they could find no trace of the missing man, nor his Datsun truck. Granger Taylor had disappeared into seemingly thin air. Months turned into years, and Granger Taylor's whereabouts remained as mysterious as it had been the morning of November 30th, 1980. Now, if you think the only people invested in Granger's disappearance was his family, have I got news for you. Everyone in the town of Duncan was invested. Everyone had their own theories, with several speculating that Granger had done the seemingly impossible and had actually boarded an alien spaceship. On June 29th, 1983, 42 months after Granger had disappeared and the scheduled date of his supposed return from the cosmos, everyone in the town of Duncan had their eyes on the skies for anything unusual. Even Granger's stepbrother Douglas, who worked for the Canadian Coast Guard at the time, sat out for half of the night on the deck of his patrol boat, scanning the sky for any sign of Granger and his alien spacecraft. However, his promised ship failed to appear. Then, in March of 1986, six years after Granger's disappearance, a municipal works crew discovered an artificial crater 600 feet in diameter off Mount Prevost Road, which overlooks northwestern Duncan. Scattered in the vicinity of the crater were rusted and discolored fragments of what appeared to have once been a truck. A wheel was found in a tree 60 feet off the ground, and a license plate that went with Granger's truck was found embedded in a tree. The local Royal Canadian Mounted Police subsequently investigated the scene and discovered two shards of what proved to be human bone, not far from the Depression. Given that it was 1986 and the DNA profiling still wasn't a thing, the remains could not be definitively confirmed. 
but many Duncan residents, including the police and several members of Granger's family, believe these bones to be the remains of Granger Taylor. In the weeks following the discovery, several theories emerged as to Granger Taylor's last moments on Earth. The most popular theory being that Granger Taylor died by suicide, that he was depressed or suffering from some sort of mental illness, which you could argue the second because he claimed to be speaking to aliens, and that Granger's inability to solve the mystery of flying saucer proportion had eaten away at him during his long hours of self-imposed isolation in the final months of his life. Unable to cope with his failure, he set out with the intention of taking his own life, concocting a tale of interstellar voyage in an attempt to ease the pain of friends and family he would leave behind. So on the night of November 29th, 1980, he packed up his Datsun with dynamite, which he used for removing tree stumps, drove out into the wilderness, and deliberately blew himself and his car up. But those close to him say he wasn't depressed or suicidal. As for the mental illness angle, yes, he was hearing telepathic voices from aliens in his dreams. But that's it. They were just in his dreams and only in his dreams. He wasn't hearing these voices in his waking life. Two, the voices started when he was 32. The first onset of schizophrenia in men is usually in their late teens or early 20s. And while it's not impossible that Granger develops schizophrenia at 32, again, it's highly unlikely because also it's, you know, your dreams. Robert and Granger's mother, Grace, say there's no way that he would have killed himself. Of course, while that's one of those things that you could never really know about a person, I think they're kind of right. It seems kind of unnecessary to concoct a whole alien story just to blow yourself up. And while it has been suggested that maybe Granger went the Heaven's Gate route, at no point did he say he needed to shed his earthly body to get onto the spacecraft. Not only that, the things that really stick with me are his note and his will. One, his note doesn't read like a suicide note. There's no, I'm so unhappy, I tried, I did everything I could. There's no, it's not your fault. There's nothing you could do to have prevented this. And as for the will, the fact that he changed the words death and deceased to departure and departed throughout the document also indicates to me that it wasn't a suicide. Another theory is that Granger died in an accident. He was known to have a supply of dynamite that he used to clear tree stumps on the family farm. So it is possible that he loaded up his truck with dynamite intent on using it to blast him into space to meet up with the spaceship. However, again, him filling his car with dynamite on the night in question seems unlikely because, again, he never said anything in his conversation about like, oh, I have to blast off into the atmosphere and they're going to pick me up along the way. His story was always consistent, that the aliens were going to bring on a storm to hide the UFO that they were going to go and pick up Granger in. It is possible that his truck was struck by lightning, igniting the dynamite he still had in the truck, causing the explosion. And while that's highly unlikely, a similar incident did happen in Canada when on June 26, 1930, a drill boat named the John B. King was drilling holes for dynamite in Ontario when lightning struck it, igniting the dynamite and killing 30 people on board. But the thing is, this explosion was fucking massive. A tire was found in a tree 60 feet up and the license plate was found embedded in a tree. The rest of the fragments found were minuscule. A few sticks of dynamite doesn't do that. And Granger would have had to literally pack up his car with dynamite. And Robert says he's 99% sure that he saw dynamite at Granger's house after his disappearance. Meaning that one, he didn't pack his car with dynamite. Two, if he did pack his car with dynamite, he would have got, had to get it somewhere else, which doesn't make any fucking sense. Why would you go through all the trouble when you literally have dynamite in your fucking house? 
Dynamite also isn't exactly the easiest thing to get. You can't just go to a fucking CVS and pick it up. It's the type of thing that when you buy it, the store sells it to you and they keep a record of your purchase in case you wild out and do some crazy shit with the dynamite. That's responsible, yeah. Absolutely. But there are no records of Granger Taylor buying dynamite on the day he disappeared or immediately before. However, there are those who doubt whether the remains found at the blast site belong to Granger Taylor or his truck at all. The Mounties found fragments of a blue truck. The thing is, Granger's truck was pink, Pepto-Bismol pink, which I'm obsessed with. What? Okay. I love this guy. I fucking love this guy. I fucking know, Amy. I fucking know. Robert and a friend of his painted Granger's truck that color before he went missing. Robert said, quote, what they found on the mountain was not Granger's truck, end quote, adding that, quote, they have no actual idea if it was Granger's bones or not, end quote. While the bone fragments were concluded to be human, they could not be concluded as to whether they belonged to a male or a female. So DNA wasn't available when the remains were discovered in 1986. So you might be saying to yourself, okay, why don't they just test the bone fragments now? Well, they can't because all of the evidence in the case has gone missing. The bone fragments, the pieces of the truck, everything related to the case has been, quote unquote, lost. Nobody knows where it is. And even more of note, the only people who ever saw this evidence were the officers who recovered it, leading conspiracy theorists to wonder if any of this evidence even existed to begin with. Which leads to the theory that the explosion was just a red herring and that Granger disappeared because he wanted to start a new life and join the intelligence services in South America. So one, Granger is a bona fide genius. So it's not super unlikely that an intelligence service would want to court him. He had spent some time in Colombia and had spoken of traveling there. In maintaining his stance that his friend didn't take his life, Robert said, quote, just before we built the spaceship, Granger had said if he wanted to disappear, all he would have to do is grow a beard and move to another country and no one would freaking know where he was, end quote. <laughs> and he says freaking, which is adorable. Like amazing. Canadians, you gotta love them, right? Hey. Hey. That being said, you don't fake your death to start a new life and leave 10 grand in cash behind and all your belongings. Kind of going to need that. Yeah. He also just straight up didn't have a reason to fake his death. He wasn't in debt or any sort of financial trouble. He wasn't in trouble with the law or had any of the other reasons why people usually opt to disappear. Granger was also really close with his family, and it seemed like he wouldn't have had a problem being like, I'm over living in Canada. I'm going to move to Colombia. I'll fucking send you a postcard when I get there. He was a single man with no real ties to Canada, so it's not like he had to be deceptive about moving. However, if he did indeed join the intelligence service in South America, it is possible that they told him that he couldn't tell anyone that he was leaving and they faked his death to make him disappear. Then there's the last theory, that Granger Taylor did exactly what he told everyone he was going to do and boarded a spaceship. So Granger liked to smoke weed and used LSD and was apparently using LSD as much as every day leading up to his disappearance. Holy fuck, dude. Girl. Girl. That's, that's a vibe. Okay. It's a vibe. We're getting into it. Now, while on the surface, it may look like that's an item in the like he was psychotic and delusional column. I'm going to argue that it might actually be in the Granger totally made contact with aliens and boarded a spaceship column. See, back in the 1970s, 
two physicists suggested that it might be possible to establish psychic links across great distances, enabling people to communicate with and even view entities across the globe and maybe even the entire galaxy. This concept was called remote viewing. And this theory was taken so seriously that the United States Department of Defense and the CIA launched a secret program called Project Stargate to investigate the potential for psychic phenomena in military and domestic intelligence applications. Amy's so excited. I love all this. I'm like dancing around. I have like both hands in the air. I'm ridiculous. I'm ridiculous. I wish all of you guys could see this. This is so wonderful. (laughs) To boost the supposed psychic powers of remote viewers, the military prescribed them with a performance-enhancing drug, LSD. Apparently, one doctor working on the project stumbled upon a barrel with... 700 million doses of LSD inside, which, what? Jesus, fuck. The fuck. That had a street value of over a billion dollars. The CIA was known to contaminate the water supply of unsuspecting towns and just sit back and see what would happen. And if you thought, which is fucking wild, and if you thought members of the CIA were immune from being drugged themselves, It became a known thing to never drink from the punch bowl at the CIA holiday party because it was more than likely laced with LSD. And there is an excellent series about this that came out in 2017 starring Peter Sarsgaard that I can't name because of the actor's strike, but it's available on Netflix if you want to get into the wild shit that the CIA did with LSD and MKUltra. The official position from the U.S. government is that nothing came out of Project Stargate and that it was a total failure. But conspiracy theorists maintain that not only did it work, but it worked quite well, and that government work and research with LSD, remote viewing, and telepathic communication continues to this day. Coincidentally, or not, the U.S. government was working on Project Stargate while Granger was having these experiences. Mm. Okay. That just gave me chills. (laughs) It gave me chills. So another thing that needs to be discussed is the time frame. Granger explicitly told Robert and wrote in the note to his parents that he would be gone for 42 months. However, 42 months later, Granger failed to show. And so this is one of the reasons, too, that people are like, this didn't work out. He didn't fucking do this. The only person who wasn't surprised by this was Robert, because prior to his quote unquote departure, Granger explained that while the trip would be 42 months long for him, it wouldn't be for everyone else. Why is that, you ask? Well... According to Einstein's theory of relativity, time dilates for objects traveling near the speed of light. So we're getting, we're getting sciencey and we're getting nerdy, girls. Talk nerdy to me, Monique. I'm loving all of this. <laughs> the equation for time dilation is you take your velocity, aka how fast you're traveling, and you're going to divide it by the speed of light. So our current physics tells us that we can't travel faster than the speed of light. So your velocity number is never going to be greater than the speed of light. However, we do know that our current physics is wrong or at least not complete. Anyway, as you approach the speed of light, this equation will tell you how much time is passing for you versus how much time is passing for them. And I'm going to thank the Prosecutors Podcast for doing the math for me because there's absolutely no fucking way I would have been able to do this myself. The equation is so fucking insane. I'm like, I literally don't. I, I had to listen to this portion of like three times to be like, okay, I understand what's happening now. Okay. Hashtag not a fucking scientist. <laughs> the joys of quantum physics. Yeah. <laughs> not for everyone. Girl. Exactly. Not. I love quantum physics. My brain is just like, girl, what? <laughs> what? 
I think quantum, quantum physics is fascinating. I, I, I love it. And the little bit that I know when I explain to people, like everything, like most things are empty space and it's just a bunch of vibrations and it makes it look like things are solid. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, I swear I'm not on drugs. This is just quantum physics. <laughs> it's like, you sound crazy. It's <laughs> like, but I'm actually correct. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually like scientifically correct. So let's imagine that Granger is traveling at 99.7% the speed of light. Based on the time dilation equation, 42 months for him would be 45 years for us. So if he was traveling at that speed, we can expect him back in 2025. However, Robert said that when he spoke to Granger about this, he got the impression that Granger wouldn't be back during Robert's lifetime. So if we speed up the velocity a little bit, and let's say the spacecraft is able to travel at 99.9% the speed of light, then Granger would not be back until 2057, meaning 42 months for him would be 77 years on Earth. Every little percentage that you go up in the speed of light increases that number exponentially. If we change the equation that they were able to travel at 99.99% the speed of light, Granger would not return until 2228, meaning none of us would be around if he were to hypothetically return. And again, under our current physics, this isn't possible because you would need an unlimited amount of energy to travel that far that fast. But seeing all that has come out regarding the UAPs in the last several months, it's very clear that whatever that phenomenon is, they have a technology that we, no pun, are light years away from. Couple that with the fact that Granger predicted a storm so loud and violent that a spaceship could come down, pick him up, and no one would be the wiser a month in advance. Our fucking weather apps can't accurately predict if there's going to be rain in an hour or not. And of course, all of this could just be a coincidence. But as you're very well aware by now, I don't believe in coincidence. For those of you who live in Canada, the CBC released a documentary about Granger Taylor in 2019 called Spaceman. I tried to watch it and download it, but it's one of those like, this is not available in your region bullshit. But if you have seen it, you live in Canada. I know we have uh, Canadian listeners. Let a bitty know what the fuck is up with that, that uh, documentary. And that is the mysterious disappearance of Granger Taylor. I am the happiest girl in the wide world right now. <laughs> I have had nonstop chills. Monique, there was aliens, there was acid, there was quantum physics. Yeah. Like, I'm actually just speechless and blown away. <laughs> so this is your last very belated birthday gift. You fucking nailed it again. <laughs> this might be one of my favorite stories that you've ever done. And that's saying a lot. You know what? Fucking same. I am so deeply intrigued by this. Yeah. I kind of just hope he comes back in our lifetime. I do too, obviously. Have you ever done LSD? No, I have actually not. That is one of the few, mm, okay. the few drugs I have not I have not participated in. Because as I've heard, it's a very long trip and I don't have time for that. <laughs> it's like 13 hours and like that's like a whole fucking day. So no, I have not. Um, but I know people who have. I've heard some wild shit. Sure. The most intense psychedelic I've ever done was DMT. Okay. Dimethyltryptamine, which is like otherwise known as the spirit molecule. And I fucking saw some shit on that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people like feel like they have experiences with other beings and whatnot, uh -huh. which I kind of did too. They all looked very human. They were not 
like fantastical in any way. But well, the thing that's also very interesting to me is because again, he's not saying that he's he's seeing this while he's tripping. It's while he's sleeping. And as anyone who you know remembers dreams, they're like, oh, I'm hanging out with my dad, but it's Bruce Willis, but it's my dad, and I'm not clocking it's Bruce Willis. And then we're like, it's all like, you know, I've only had a couple of very clear dreams that were like very, 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 very vivid. And it's always involves someone who's passed away. Interesting. And like, you know, there's like speculation as to whether that's them, you know, having a message and visiting or whatever. But for the most part, dreams don't make any fucking sense. So to be like, I'm having these vivid dreams repeatedly. These aliens are fucking talking to me. That's just not how dreams work. You know, no, this is very, and like reoccurring dreams are very rare to begin with. So to have the same, oh, mine is just my reoccurring dreams are my teeth falling out or oh my God, uh, that was getting girl, my skin or, peeling off. Not, not a fan of that. My hair falling out. Oh, I haven't had that. It's teeth falling out or I'm getting ready to do a show. And the show I have memorized is not the show we're doing, oh. uh, but they're like, but it's a show that I did like four years ago. It's like, you remember that, right? You're like, and you're on action. Yep. And you're on. And I bomb, obviously, because I don't know. I didn't fucking memorize a show from four years ago. Um, those are the only recurring dreams I have. This is crazy. This actually just weirdly makes me want to do some acid now. Like I've gone this far <laughs> in my life without trying it. And now I'm like, fuck, could I have talked to aliens this whole time? Like, let's fucking do it. Where where are the tabs? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think he doesn't seem like psychotic. He doesn't like a lot of his, you know, a lot of his family is like, he, he died by suicide and that's just it. We all have to fucking move on. But then there's like, like Robert's like, no, that is not what the fuck happened. And he would just carry like, like a handful of sticks of dynamite. That's not enough to blow up a fucking car. Yeah. Like to, that, it, it, that it's eviscerated. That is the wrong color, apparently. Yeah. There, I mean, there was a thing that it was like, well, maybe the explosion like burned off the paint but but I couldn't find that it was originally a blue car either. I don't even care what happened. I want to believe that he got to go live on an alien spaceship and be an alien mechanic, I guess. Yes. You know that I'm I'm the woo-woo of, of the two of us. And like when I read the the synopsis of this originally, I was like, I mean, no. <laughs> he did not <laughs> go. But girl. I don't fucking know. Like, the evidence, I think, is very compelling. Monique says it. It must be true. I'm sold. Say no more. (laughs) Oh, my God. Say no more. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the story. I'm literally beaming. And I think that, like, made my week, honestly. I am so glad. I'm going to be riding a high from this, no pun intended, for (laughs) quite a while. I'm so glad. Uh, I really wanted to give you an alien story. So, the last... Because I, I was looking for like an alien true crime related story. Does such a thing exist? Heaven's Gate, probably. Yeah, okay. And then I was like, and then this came up. And I, so I was like ready to do it for the crime. And I was like, there isn't a crime that happened here. But I was like, but, you know, I, I, so I listened, like, like I, I researched like half of it. And I was like, okay, I'll just save it for like a, like my next paranormal. Paranormal rainy day. And that was before I, I got into like all the shit of like, did he? Is he actually on a fucking spaceship right now? I fucking hope so. I bet he's living his best life if he is. I think so. He's like, this is what I was born for. Yes. And given that like all this shit that's come out in the last several months with the UAPs. (gasps) Right? All the whistleblower shit. I love it. Girl, 
and the the biological material of non-human origin. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? I know. Grange your fucking nose. Grange your fucking nose. Nose. Girl. <sighs> Beaming. I like, I'm like speechless. I can't even. I love you. Words. That's it. <laughs> I love you for this. Thank you so much. <laughs> of course. I really enjoyed researching this, incidentally. I, I really enjoyed it. I was like, it was <sighs> nerdy with science and there was aliens and drugs. It was like all my favorite things in one. <laughs> Amazing. I'm obsessed with you. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you. You know me so well. <laughs> so I didn't know drugs was going to be part of it till I got I got into the thing, and I was like, I guess it is all of Amy's. It's <laughs> <laughs> like never mad about that, girl. So yeah, there you go, girl. That was amazing. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much. I know you're so adorable. I you're so you're cute. Adorable. So, <laughs> I love you. Thank you. Now I feel bad because I, I feel like I'm going to bring everybody down with my uh, weird truth. Yeah, because you're going to traumatize us. <laughs> I am too, kind of. Because it's been two fucking weeks and Amy's like, I'm fucking going hard, bitches. Buckle the fuck up. <laughs> Amy's head is in her hands and she's laughing because, because I know her. We all know her at this point. We've all been traumatized countless <laughs> times <laughs> over the last two, two and a half years. Yes. And yeah, I, I did not do a, I did not do a soft story this, uh, no. this week. There are some, uh, really, really upsetting details. Should we get the trigger warnings out of the way now, Amy? I don't even, the worst part is like, I don't even know what to, what to trigger, <laughs> trigger warning without like giving anything away for the story. So it's, it's, could you just do like a, a little trigger warning, like right before it gets real bad? I have that. Okay, in cool. Here. Love that. So I will warn you. Great. <laughs> oh, God. It's probably going to be more upsetting if you're... Just waiting for it? A male. No, I was going to say, you're okay. pr- it's probably going to be more upsetting if you are a male uh-huh. than a woman. So... And I'm not even drinking today, guys. Fuck. If, <laughs> I'm not trying to give anything away, but like, yeah. It's still going to be horrifying for everyone involved, I'm sure. Amy, I love you. Never change for a fucking second. Thank you. Same. I love you. Thank you again for that story. I know I've said it so many times, but I'm giddy right now. I know. I'm so glad. All right, girl. Traumatize okay. us. <laughs> now that I got my half-assed rambling trigger warning out of the way. <laughs> so sources, all that's interesting, the lineup, Cult Nation with a V, Metropolis, Japan, Wikipedia, and excerpts from the book, Geisha Harlot Strangler Star by William Johnston. Oh shit. What a title. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Buckle up. One quick note, the story takes place in Japan, and while traditionally Japanese names are presented as last name followed by first name, I've decided to stick with the Western naming convention of first name followed by last name. Thank you. Just because I feel like that's easier for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sada Abe was born on May 28th, 1905, and was the seventh of eight children born to Shigeyoshi and Katsu Abe. Although, to be fair, only four of them survived to adulthood. Fuck. Yes. The Abes were a well-respected upper-middle-class family of tatami mat makers in Tokyo. Because Sada was the youngest surviving child, her mother doted on her and, proud of her daughter's beauty, would frequently dress her up to take her out. 
Sada attended Kanda Primary School and began taking shamisen lessons, which, if you don't know, is a three-string traditional Japanese instrument that is played with a type of pick called a bachi. Mm-hmm. However, Sada was a mediocre student at best and increasingly disliked school. Her teachers recommended that she quit taking shamisen lessons, but her mother encouraged her to continue them as well as her singing lessons. Which was slightly unusual because at the time, both of those activities were typically associated with geishas and not really seen as a classical artistic endeavor like they are now. Although her mother encouraged these activities, Sada also seemed to embrace the image of the geisha profession as a romantic occupation from a young age and would frequently skip school for her music lessons and started to wear stylish makeup and kimonos. This attraction to the geisha profession was not unusual at the time. Although some considered it a low-class profession, leading geishas were the equivalent of a supermodel, popular singer, and actress all rolled into one Mm. and embodied genuine artistic accomplishment and social sophistication. And contrary to popular belief, didn't necessarily involve sexual activity. Right. Though sometimes it did, usually by geishas who were considered a lower rank. So when you got to the kind of that stardom level, that was, you were basically a performer. Yeah. It's like a, I mean, that's kind of like during the civil war and stuff that the higher class courtesans would like, you'd pay money and they'd play the piano and shit for you before they yes. blow you. And you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> As opposed to the women on the street who literally had pieces of carpet being like, laying it down, be like, you want to fuck on the sidewalk? No. <laughs> I got my rug. We're good. Two bits. Boom. After graduating from primary school, Sada began taking lessons in sewing and calligraphy at home from a series of tutors, which were skills that were considered necessary at the time for any woman who hoped to marry a respectable husband. During this time, however, some drama started in the Abe household over who would inherit the family business, Mm. her brother or her sister, which was kind of progressive for the time. Sure. Because it's a woman. It's It's a woman. Yeah. Because of this, her parents frequently sent her out of the house to play on her own, and as a result, Sada spent much of her childhood unsupervised in downtown Tokyo. As a young girl, Sada was described as strong-willed and brave. When she argued with other children, even when her opponent was an older boy who hit her, she never cried and always held her ground. She eventually made friends with some other girls from the neighborhood who were equally independent. When she was 15 years old, while hanging out at a friend's house, she was raped by an acquaintance while they'd been hooking up otherwise known now as acquaintance rape. He was a university student and a friend of her friend's brother. She bled for two days afterwards, and frightened by this, she told her mother what had happened. Although her mother was understanding and supportive of Asada after the incident, and even went to confront the boy's family about what had happened, the family refused to see her. They did not pursue the matter legally, and Sada was advised to keep quiet about what had happened so as not to ruin her prospects for marriage. Yeah, bar of gross. Ugh. Yeah. Which, it's kind of a confusing time because, like, on the one hand, like, yes, you were kind of expected to be a maiden, but also that wasn't... I was like that it wouldn't like ruin your prospects for marriage completely if you weren't. Also, I found out through the book, which I thought was very interesting, that the Japanese word for virgin didn't have the connotation of being sexually inexperienced like like the Western culture does. It literally just meant you were unmarried. Oh, yeah. Huh. So while it's kind of like implied that you shouldn't really like know about sex, like 
things happened and it, it wasn't a big deal, especially in like rural communities. Interesting. Yeah. After the incident, Sada became rebellious and fell in with a bunch of delinquents as she described them. She began stealing money from her parents and spending more time on the streets. She eventually began an affair with the son of a dry foods merchant when she was 16, which resulted in her parents arranging for her to become a live-in domestic for a well-off family. Though Sada believed this was more to prevent her from ruining her sister's marriage prospects by telling others about her sister's affairs. A month after she started work in the household, she put on the daughter's best kimono and ring and snuck out into the city. Although she intended to return them, her sister found her first and brought her back, where she was promptly reported to the police for her theft and fired from the household. After this, Sada's brother encouraged her to become a geisha, likely intending to pocket the money from her sale. With romantic visions of the life of fame and luxury of a geisha, she decided one night to run away to a geisha house, but was immediately homesick and returned the very same night. Not long after, Sada's brother ended the argument over the inheritance by running off with the family's savings, forcing their father to sell the tatami mat business and move the family to a rural village just north of Tokyo. Sada did not care for it, however, and spent as much time away from home as she could, frequenting less than reputable establishments and beginning a string of affairs. Her parents eventually tracked her down and brought her back home. And in July 1922, her father sold her to a geisha house. Sada's oldest sister claimed that Sada had wanted to become a geisha, but Sada herself said that this was done as punishment for her promiscuous behavior, which was common in Japan at the time. Her sister had also been sent to work in a brothel as punishment for taking several lovers after leaving her first husband. But again, like, got married after that. They brought her back. Right. Wasn't a big deal. While her sister had been scared straight and their father believed the same method would work on Sada, it had the opposite effect. And beyond a few trips home to visit her family, Sada never returned to the household. For all her romantic visions of the life of a geisha, however, Sada was quickly disillusioned with the reality. She realized she was not cut out to be a top-tier geisha who typically dedicated their lives to the art and trained from a very young age. So she remained a low-ranking geisha, and as such, one of her main duties was to provide sex for clients. And unfortunately, after five or six years of sex work, Sada contracted syphilis from one of her clients. This led to an increase in testing and physical examinations, which eventually caused her to abandon her career as a geisha to work in the Tobita brothel district. During this time, she developed a reputation for being difficult. She stole money from clients and fled the brothel several times, but was repeatedly tracked down by the well-organized, quote-unquote, legal prostitution system. After two years, however, Sada eventually succeeded in escaping and began working as a waitress. But as you can imagine, the wages weren't nearly as good. Uh, Yeah. So in 1932, she returned to unlicensed sex work. In October 1934, the unlicensed brothel where she was working was raided and she was arrested. However, a well-connected friend of the brothel owner arranged for her release and, because he was attracted to Sada, asked if she wanted to become his mistress. He set up a house for her on December 20th, 1934, and provided her with an income. Eventually, Sada asked him to leave his wife and marry her, but he refused. She asked him if she could take another lover instead but he again refused and their relationship ended shortly after. Afterwards, Sada moved to Nagoya to work as a maid at a restaurant. While there, she became romantically involved with a customer at the restaurant named Goro Omiya, who was a professor and banker with political aspirations. But since Sada knew the restaurant would not tolerate a maid having sex with a client, she once again returned to Tokyo in June. 
Omiya met up with her there and in January 1936 suggested that Sada could become financially independent by opening a small restaurant. He recommended that she should start working as an apprentice in the restaurant business, and on February 1st, 1936, Sada started an apprenticeship at the Yoshidaya restaurant. The restaurant was owned by 42-year-old Kichizo Ishida, a known womanizer who did little in the way of actually running the restaurant, which was managed primarily by his wife. Not long after Sada began working there, Ishida began making advances towards her, which she was responsive to. In mid-April, Ishida and Sada began a sexual relationship in the restaurant, I might add, which seems like a huge health code violation. Oh, so they're banging in the restaurant? Yes. Work. Well, like, there's performers singing. Oh, shit. Yeah. So it's not even like after hours. It's like, let's go. No. No, this is like on shift. Like, you're on the clock. Get paid to bang? But do you want to go bang in the back room? Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to respect it. It's fucked up, but I'm respecting respecting it. Yeah. (laughs) On April 23rd, the two met for a sexual rendezvous at a tea house, which was basically the contemporary equivalent of a love hotel. Although they only planned to have a short fling, they ended up staying in bed for four days straight. I love it. it. Right? Get it. I love it. I know this is going to take a turn and I'm going to be horrified. I know. I was going to say, I mean, it's it's fun right now, but obviously it's going to get bad. I'm living for it right now, though. Like, get it, girl. Work. Ride that D. Ride that D. Ride that D train. (laughs) Yes. On the night of April 27th, they moved to another tea house where they continued to drink and have sex and wouldn't stop even when maids entered the room to serve them. I'm I'm sorry. I'm here for all of this. I'm really here for this. I kind of am too. I like love. I love the energy. Girl, she's (laughs) stocked up on her her peanuts and her fucking Gatorade for energy. I fucking love this. I'm here for this. Yes. I was like, I I weirdly admire this. I'm not going to lie. Ishida didn't return to the restaurant until the morning of May 8th, after two whole weeks of just straight banging, apparently. Work. It's a dream, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that what we all want, really? I mean, it's what I want, for sure. Yes, correct. After the rendezvous ended, Sada became agitated and started drinking excessively. She said that she had finally come to know true love for the first time in her life, and the thought of Ishida being back with his wife made her intensely jealous. On May 9th, Sada attended a play in which a geisha attacks her lover with a large knife, and was so inspired by the performance that she decided to threaten Ishida with a knife at their next meeting. Damn, Gina, you don't do that. (laughs) You don't do that. No, no, no. No. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh, girl. No. I took a turn real quick. Right? I was just like, this seems like it's fun. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. He's clearly laying down some pipe that she's like, I'm <laughs> Oh, yeah. And apparently, like, I I read some things where, like, he would he would do basically, like, whatever she wanted. That's fucking hot, yo. Like, go downtown during the red tide. Like, oh, I believe there shit. was some food insertion play and then consumption. Yeah. They were... They were freakily very liberal. Yeah. I get that. You don't want to give that shit up too. I get that. Right? Get creative. Okay. But also you just, you can't fuck a married dude. Yeah. Can't do it. Yeah. Even if he says he's going to leave his wife, you got to be like, where are the divorce papers? 
Can't do it. Or you have to understand that's the situation and not expect anything. And then that's, yeah. Yeah, but people say that and then they're like, ah, I want him to leave. So I'm just going to go and get a geisha knife and try and like threaten <laughs> him and shit. You know, like you can't, <laughs> you know, ah, this never ends great. It never ends great. It happens. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So on May 11th, when the two once again got together, Sada pulled a kitchen knife out of her bag and threatened Ishida just like in the play. Girl. Like she used the same line and everything. Yeah. According to Sada, Ishida was startled at first, but then seemed delighted. Oh. They proceeded to have sex. And during the encounter, Sada put the knife to the base of his penis and said she would make sure he would never play around with another woman. And apparently Ishida had some fucking balls because he just laughed at this. He probably got rock hard. He's like, yeah, let's fuck him. Mm. He is into the violence here, or at least the threat of violence. It's going to escalate. I mean, I'm guessing. <laughs> it always does. does. It, it's not, things like this don't really go great, you know? Bringing a knife into your sex flight? Not, no, not always. I, I know, you know, there's, people do. It's no, it's, I, I just can't. Even just like a, like a Butterfinger, like, oh, sorry, you know, I, I, you know, you know what I mean? Like, definitely not a kitchen knife. I can barely be trusted with a knife to use it properly, just like for like a steak or something. You know what I mean? Definitely not in a <laughs> precarious scenario. No, like sensitive bits and shit. No, no vital body parts. Absolutely not. Especially since I'm like, clearly she's like, I like your dick. I would want it to be as, as intact as possible, you know? Right. But, uh, that's just me. It's like, <laughs> you love an intact dick, Monique. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how could I be so controversial yet so brave? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, same, obviously. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. So the two continued their tryst, and two nights into their rendezvous, Sada began choking him while they were having sex, which he was super into, apparently. Mm-hmm. And for the record, she also had him do this to her as well. Mm-hmm. On the evening of May 16th, 1936, Sada used her obi, which is a sash worn around the waist of a kimono, to cut off Ishida's breathing during orgasm, repeating the process several times over the next two hours. However, once she stopped the strangulation, Ishida's face became distorted and wouldn't return to its normal appearance. Uh-uh. Which I cannot even imagine the horror of what this looks like. So he proceeded to take 30 tablets of a sedative hypnotic called Calmatin to try to soothe his pain. And according to Sada, joked that if she strangled him again, not to stop because it was so painful afterwards. Two days later, on May 18th, as he was sleeping, Sada wrapped her sash twice around Ishida's neck and proceeded to strangle her lover to death. For why? We're going to get into it? Like, kind of? Yeah, sort of. Okay. Okay, because it looks like they're having a great, like, you know, kinky fuck fest. Yes. And, okay, I'm sorry. This just took, a, like, a hard left turn. No, you're, this reaction is correct. And I, I'm just like... It took a hard left turn. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm, I'm very confused as to the, as to the, for why of it. We'll get, we'll get into it. Okay, great, great. Okay. Good. But yeah, taking a little, like, post-coital nap, and then all of a sudden, you're a murderer. But what? Thought we were having a good time. I seem like she was having a good time. Right? A little knife play. Like, we were getting a little freaky. Love it. And now, now, now it's over. And definitely not a slut shame. Like, sh- she's been around. Like, so she knows. She knows when you got that good D, you don't let it go. Right? You don't strangle it. Right? 
girl, what the fuck are you doing? Okay, we'll get into it. You're, I'm sorry. We'll get into I'm, it. You're, we're getting into it. You're getting into it. No, you're t- this is the correct reaction, Monique. This is the reaction I was hoping for. <laughs> okay, thank you. From you. Let's be real. So she laid next to his body for a few hours before deciding to cut off ah, no. his penis and testicles with the kitchen knife and wrap them in a magazine cover. That's how much she loved them. She wanted to take them with her. But they don't work like that. Correct, Monique. Not that I've ever fucked a dismembered penis, but I'm speculating wildly here. They don't work. Yeah, and yet somehow you are 100% correct. Look yes. at that. It's <laughs> like, girl, like we're not, <laughs> we're not even into the half of it now. Okay. Girl, okay. Oh my God. I can't even. Okay. All right. Okay. Sada then wrote what was basically the equivalent of Sada and Ishida together forever on Ishida's left thigh and the bedsheet with his blood. She then carved the characters for her name into his left arm, put on his underwear, and taking his genitals with her, left the inn around 8 a.m., telling the staff not to disturb Ishida as she left. Shortly after, Sada met up with her former lover, Goro Omiya, and repeatedly apologized to him. He assumed she was apologizing for having taken another lover, but really, she was apologizing because she knew his association with her was going to damage his political career. Ishida's body was found by a maid later that day, and the authorities immediately began the hunt for Sada. The newspapers picked up the salacious story the next day, which immediately caused a public panic they called Abe Sada Panic. Alleged sightings of her were reported all over Japan most of which were obviously false. However, the public panic was so great that one of these false sightings almost caused a stampede. As Sada had predicted, Goro Omiya got swept up in the media frenzy and was investigated by the police for his possible involvement in the murder. Although he was released, his involvement with her immediately destroyed his political career, and he was forced to resign from his political and academic posts, eventually disappearing from public view altogether. On May 19th, the day after the murder, Sada, seemingly unconcerned, spent the day shopping and went to see a movie. The following day, she checked into an inn under a pseudonym where she had a massage and drank a few bottles of beer before writing farewell letters to Omiya, a friend, and Ishida since she planned to commit suicide the following week. Okay, here's your real trigger warning because here's where it's going to get really fucking disturbing and upsetting. After writing her letters, Sada then proceeded to unwrap Ishida's severed genitals. She then put his penis in her mouth and tried to insert it inside of her. Correct, Monique. Your face is correct. Yes. Technically necrophilia, but like very weird necrophilia. Yeah, I know. I know. Monique is clutching her pearls, (laughs) her jaws on the floor. I know. I knew that I was doing this everyone today too. Sorry. Does she say why? Like, that's that's how much she loves his dick, Monique. She doesn't want to give it up. She still wants it. That's not how dicks work, though. Oh, I am fully, fully aware. And apparently, I don't know that if she didn't realize this or what, but she kept trying. She realized it didn't work and tried multiple times after this still. Yes. Correct. <sighs> I know. There are no words, Monique. that's just my defense mechanism there are no words there are no words when sada finally gave up on this necrophilic endeavor she decided to flee to osaka and jump from a cliff on mount ikomo while holding on to ishida's penis like she wanted to die with it 
basically. She could have just like not killed him and kept fucking him. Is that, was that just never an option for her? This is a very fair question, Oni. <laughs> We're kind of going to get into it, but it's okay. also one of those things where you're like, I mean, <laughs> that still doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. At 4 p.m. on May 20th, police detectives responding to a tip they'd received arrived at the room Sada was staying in. Even though she immediately admitted to being Sada Abe, the police shockingly weren't convinced. So she showed them Ishida's severed genitals as proof. Can you imagine? You're like, yeah, I'm the person you're looking for. And they're like, "Mm, we get that a lot, actually. And then she's like, oh, wait, do you want to see my memento? Yeah, girl. Pearls are clutched. The story is wild. Yeah, yes. Sada was arrested and police began their interrogation. When they asked her why she had killed Ishida, one of the officers said she became visibly excited and that her eyes sparkled in a strange way. She told them, quote, I loved him so much. I wanted him all to myself. But since we were not husband and wife, as long as he lived, he could be embraced by other women. I knew that if I killed him, no other woman could ever touch him again. So I killed him, end quote. But then you don't get to have him either because he's dead. Right, but nobody else can have him either, Monique. And I kept the important bits, which are not functional. That don't work. My grandfather was a big joke teller. And uh, he used to tell this joke about like a much older man dating a younger woman. And then the friends going to the, the man being like, you know, she's fucking around on you, right? And his response would say, it's better to eat chicken between two than ship by yourself. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Like no one gets the dick and I get that, but you mo- most importantly don't get the dick. Yes. And if she's under a dick spell, which I mean, who among <laughs> us, right? Dickmatized happens. Dickmatized. Totally. It happens. And like I said, she's, she's had her experiences. So she's not, I'm guessing she hasn't encountered anything like this magical dick. I, why didn't you just kill the wife? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not condoning that. But like, that makes more sense. Monique. Yeah, obviously. Girl. That made so much more sense. <laughs> so much more fucking sense. I have no idea. This reasoning is not sound. No, no, it is not. From the, the knife-wielding woman who cut off her lover's penis. <laughs> Shocking. I know. It wasn't a rational, uh, well-thought-out plan, clearly. I know, I know. I just, I, this just doesn't, I'm, I'm trying to make it make sense in some way. And I understand it, it intrinsically doesn't. It does not. She basically said that she just did it out of love. Like she loved him so much. She didn't want anybody else to have him. So she was going to kill him. But she doesn't get the D anymore. Correct, Monique. And it's all about the D. Like why don't you know? give up like a D girl? Never. No. I mean, unless they're like abusive and terrible, then uh, yeah, of course that, you do. But like, too. you know, but that, that should go without saying. But um, this will not make sense. And it will never make sense. Yes. I was like, this is very dumb. (laughs) I would like to go on the record to say that. This is very dumb. That's fair. Yes, that is an accurate analysis of the situation. (laughs) Back to the story. It's never going to make sense, Monique. (laughs) Thank you. So when the police asked her why she had severed Ishida's genitals, she said, quote, because I couldn't take his head or body with me. I wanted to take the part of him that brought back to me the most vivid memories, end quote. This is literally like, a memento mutilation. It's so fucked. She also later admitted that after she had killed Ishida, she felt a sense of clarity and totally at ease. Quote, as though a heavy burden had been lifted from my shoulders, end quote. Sada Abe's trial began on November 25th, 1936. And by 5 a.m., 
hours before the courthouse opened, crowds of morbidly fascinated spectators had already gathered in the hopes of catching sight of the infamous murderer. However, she wore a bizarre conical hat when entering and leaving the courtroom (laughs) to hide her face. Okay. Which I kind of wish I had found a picture of, but I did not, unfortunately. Although there is a great picture of her like being escorted by police and she just has like this beautific smile on her face and she just looks so just like poised and happy about it. It's bizarre. Fucking bizarre. During the trial, reporters relayed as much of her sensational testimony as government censors allowed. And apparently it was very sensational. Yeah, girl, what about it isn't? Uh, Correct. But even one of the three judges who tried her case admitted to being aroused by the explicit details presented in court, which awkward. Can you imagine like under a robe that you just see like he's just pitching a tent? Right. In the middle of a fucking trial? What the fuck? Like, sir. What the fuck? Sir. Could you put your penis away, sir? (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Put your gavel away. This is a court of <laughs> law, ma'am. Uh, oh my God. We're having a serious criminal trial right now. Are you for real? Girl, I can't with this entire story. I'm not going to lie. I'm glad that it's not as traumatizing as I expected it to be. I didn't expect there to be this many chuckles. <laughs> what the fuck is the story? That's honestly kind of what I was hoping. It was one of the things where I was like, this is horrifying and <laughs> deeply upsetting, but also... I feel like Monique and I will get a kick out of this. <laughs> what the fuck Weirdly. is the story? It's bananas is what it is. Clearly. Although Sada Abe pled guilty to the charges, numerous witnesses were called, including Sada's sister, to provide testimony in the case. And Ishida's severed genitals were presented as evidence. Wow! <laughs> yes. Correct. So they're just like in a fucking jar of formaldehyde or whatever the fuck. And they're like, here it is. This is dick and balls. I guess so. I guess better than wrapped in a, a sheet of magazine the paper. Fucking newspaper? Yeah. Like you're a, the weirdest doggy bag ever. I can't. Oh, oh, I know. I know. I hate myself for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just made Monique throw up in her mouth a little, a little bit. bit. I'm so, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Despite Sada's objections, her lawyer insisted that she had been insane at the time of the murder. On December 21st, 1936, Sada Abe was convicted of murder and mutilation of a corpse. Before receiving her sentence, she addressed the court saying, quote, The thing I regret most about this incident is that I have come to be misunderstood as some kind of sexual pervert. There has never been a man in my life like Ishida. There were men I liked, but none made me feel the way I did toward him, end quote. Though the prosecution demanded 10 years and Sada herself requested the death penalty, she was ultimately sentenced to just six years in prison for the murder. What the fuck? I know. Insane, right? That's because that, that judge was pitching a tent. He was like, ah. Right? He was maybe like. I, maybe I got a shot with her afterwards. <laughs> He's like, I can wait. I can wait six years. All right. Yeah. The judge explained his decision by stressing the role that Ishida had played in the events leading up to his death and Sada's mental state at the time. Sada Abe served her sentence at Tochigi Women's Penitentiary. Her sentence was reduced on November 10th, 1940, due to good behavior, however, and she was released exactly five years after the murder on May 17th, 1941. Yeah, this bitch only got five years for this. Wild. I mean, she get she did get released during World War II, so like J- Japan's not having a great time. Not great, no. no. After she was released from prison, Sada entered an identity protection program. Because her real name was universally known, the courts had obtained police cooperation in sponsoring a pseudonym so that she could gain employment and create a stable life for herself. 
The police also made it impossible for anybody to trace her through the usual legal means. Although the newspapers reported her release, they also said that she had been taken in by a society for the protection of women. Sada attempted to return to a normal life, assuming her alias and taking work as a maid, but was eventually fired when her employers learned her true identity. She then became the mistress of what she described as a quote-unquote serious man, but again, the relationship ended after several years when his family found out who she really was. So the mistress part was fine, but it was just that as a mistress with the, the dick cutter. Yeah. That's, that was the issue. Yeah. Now, yeah, mistresses are just like commonplace. Like, yeah. Okay. It's like not a big deal. Yeah. Okay. A murderer mistress? Get the fuck out of here. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's a bridge too far. <laughs> How dare you, ma'am? The police record of Abe's interrogation and confession became a national bestseller in 1936. And in 1947, Ichiro Kimura's The Erotic Confessions of Abe Sada also became a national bestseller with over 100,000 copies sold. While the book was in the form of an interview with Sada, it was actually just based on the police interrogation records. In response, Sada sued the author for libel, which was settled out of court, and published her own autobiography in 1948 called Memoirs of Abe Sada in which she stressed her love for Ishida. Again, she says the whole reason she killed him and cut off his dick was because she loved him so much. Bottom line. Like, she stands by that. I just literally am speechless to that. Because I could, I could, even, I could even see in a warped way, like, if I can't have him, no one can, bl- bullshit, that you hear all the time, which is fucking nonsense. But I could even see, like, that warped logic. The dick cutting, though... Step too far. Uh, that I cannot, because when Lorena Bobbitt did it, it's like this man sexually assaults me on a regular basis. And this is like yeah. the main instrument of my, my pain. So I'm like, that makes sense. Sense. Mm-hmm. This is literally just like, I loved it so much and I want to take it with me, even though it's not functional in any way, shape or form right now. And probably gross and starting to smell after a certain point. Yes. Monique and I are just both throwing our hands up and shaking our heads because we're just like, I I have no idea. I really can't explain this. Like, I've explained it, but the explanation makes no logical sense. So here we are. I mean, it's a thing you say all the time that it's a good thing that we don't understand. Yes. (laughs) But if you were like, I get it, I would totally cut off some dude's dick if I murdered him. Like, (laughs) oh, yeah. Hasn't thought. Who among us, right? I got a collection next to my fucking shoes. I just don't understand. No. I don't understand. That's not how any of it works. Nope. As they used to say in that commercial. Realizing that she couldn't hide from her past, Sada instead chose to capitalize on her notoriety by agreeing to an interview with a popular magazine and even appeared for several years in a traveling one-act stage production starting in 1947. Girl, she should have moved to the U.S. This is American shit. Right? They would have loved it. Yeah. Capitalism all the way. I was like, honestly, like... Japan kind of loved it too. Like the rooms that they stayed at in all of the tea houses became like super popular. Everyone wanted to go and stay in the rooms that they had their affair in. And I'm assuming the one he was murdered in as well. Probably. Yeah. In 1952, she once again attempted to return to a normal life and began working at a working class pub in downtown Tokyo. However, she was employed under her own name, which as you can imagine, was a huge draw for customers. She would make dramatic entrances into the pub, slowly descending a long staircase. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. And fixing a haughty gaze on the patrons, to which the men in the pub would respond by putting their hands over their crotches and shouting out things like, hide the knives. Oh my God. 
which is like morbid and terrible, but like also, do I kind of want to go to this pub? Yes. Do I hate myself for saying that? Also, yes. This is fucking nuts. Every it's no nuts. pun, but um. <laughs> oh, drum drum symbol. So good. I love an inadvertent pun. You know this. Girl. <laughs> I mean, this is like the fucking Beulah Ann and shit. Yeah. They're loving this shit. This is the Chicago shit. I was like, to be fair, she did kind of try to disappear and lay low. And then she realized she was like, I mean, I just don't have that option. So I might as well just like kind of own it. I mean, kind of respect that. Yeah. But also just people are trash for even (laughs) being like, I will pay for this. Correct. She like almost like weirdly became like sort of this like feminist icon because of this whole thing, which is even more bizarre to me. I can't for a single second. Yeah. She continued working there until 1966 and in 1967 opened a small restaurant and bar of her own called Wakatake, though it closed shortly after. In 1969, Sada starred as herself in Tero Ishii's documentary, History of Bizarre Crimes by Women in the Meiji, Teisho, and Showa eras, before she disappeared from the public eye the following year. After she disappeared in 1970, nothing else is known about her life. There were rumors that she had died by suicide or that she had entered a convent, but nothing was ever confirmed, and the date of her death is still unknown. As for Ishida's genitals, under the legal code at the time, they were the property of Ishida's legal heir, but they refused their claim to them, so they remained in police possession. (laughs) So his wife was like, you can keep them. I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Also, like, what if, even if it wasn't right, like, what if it's, like, his, like, nephew or something, and they're like, oh, by the way, if you want his testicles and, like, penis, you can totally have it. And he's like, I I don't have anywhere to put it, actually, so, like, if you guys just, like, want to do you that didn't even occur to me that it could be like his kid right so awkward do you want your dad's dick and balls we got those like i'm i no i'm fine thanks they're in a ziploc so they're like fresh (laughs) no 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 no. (laughs) oh the visual of that monique why would you do that to me all my joy from your story has been ruined by that image (laughs) it's just left your body Oh. <laughs> this, is, this story's insane. Mushing around. Ah, I can't. Apparently, after the heir refused their claim to them, they were moved to Tokyo University Medical School's Pathology Museum for public display. Can you imagine? No. No. I don't. I think most men would probably not. I mean, you wouldn't know it with the amount of fucking dick pics that are just sent with reckless abandon. But I would imagine that most men wouldn't want their most sensitive no. areas on display forever. No, definitely not. And if so, I feel like you want like a cast of it in its full glory. Like, not- yeah, a wreck, not this flaccid cutoff thing. No, not in person, <sighs> severed from your body. No, no. And mystery of all mysteries, sometime after World War II, they mysteriously vanished. And just like Sada Abe herself, were never seen again. I'm going to say the Nazis took it. Oh, my God. They thought that it was like some like some relic of like the past that could bring them like some culty yeah, shit. Yeah, cult shit with it or something. You might be right. I think so. Oh, shit. Speculating wildly. I love it. Speculate away. Mm. And... That is the insane story of the murder of Kichizo Ishida by Sada Abe. Nothing could have prepared me for that story. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm like so proud of myself right now. It's ridiculous. I'm really glad that it's not your normal traumatizing route. I tried not to go too crazy. I appreciate that. It's very, it's noted and it's appreciated. I thought we could have some moments of levity within the situation, despite the horror of the crime here. This story's insane. Like top to bottom. It's insane. (laughs) I was like, bottom line, period, full stop. Yep. Say no more. It's fucked up because there are things that I do respect about her. (gasps) I feel the same way. I got it. We're on on the same page here. I mean, always, but it just doesn't work if it's not attached (laughs) to a blood flow system, you know, like a hydraulic or something. It needs something. (laughs) A popsicle stick in there or something. I don't know. You know, something. Yeah. Oof. So yeah, if I, uh, sorry to all the uh, the gents, the gents out there, the penis carrying people. There you go. <laughs> like, I'm sure that was not a fun one. No, no, I haven't heard a story that insane in a very long time. So thank you for that, Amy. Ayo, you're very welcome. It <laughs> was great though. I I read it and I was like, Monique and I will one be horrified and two get a few laughs out of this. I know for a fact. Yes, because it's insane. It's insane. Thank you again for your story, though. Like, I got you. Beaming. I'm so happy. I, again, there are no words for how happy I am. Yay. Yay. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot, period, Amy. Follow us on the gram at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your true crazy personal stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Thank you guys so much. We're so obsessed with you. Thank you for being flexible and giving us those two weeks to get our, our shit somewhat situated. But we're here. We're back with a vengeance. And don't forget to keep it cute. And keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.